Trub Alford, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, my guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, uh, two weeks since his most recent appearance on the show, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave, you're there. You're helping me introduce the podcast, whether you want to or not. Yes. Hi, everyone. <laughs> A man of many words. Uh, yeah. Dave, uh, you always uh, you joined the podcast to analyze all baseball. In particular, this week, you analyze the sort of baseball that concerns a Will Myers trade. Well, I again, I called it Will Myers trade. Will Myers uh, to Tampa Bay for for James Shields. Would you, how would you characterize your opinions on that trade uh, broadly? Do I have to do this again? Didn't we already record that? Yeah, this is this is the introduction. This is the first thing people are hearing. Oh well, stay tuned for me answering a question that Carson just asked me because now he's asked me twice. And I also ask you about Zane Greinke. Answer, answer that one. Yes, I already did. That's my answer. And finally, uh, I ask you to weigh in on a piece I wrote for the site on Monday. Uh, what's your response to that? To reiterate, I don't read anything you write. Okay, that is Dave Cameron, and you're about to hear uh, him analyze all baseball in what follows its Fangraph Studio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. certainly something I've been thinking about, but uh, Fangraph's getting a couple more writers into the BBWAA. That's, uh, yeah, that's I'm sure the ha- fact that you're, you're, you're one of those writers has nothing to do with the fact that you've been thinking about it. I have been, th- well, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about it from a number of different perspectives, but uh, mostly um, how to, how not to behave like an idiot uh, when um, I find myself in professional settings. I've been thinking about right. that a little bit. Good. We encourage you to continue thinking about that. Yeah, I've also been thinking about uh, ways that I can actually utilize that uh, that access because it's not something that has always necessarily been. Um, people will know this, um, and I, you know, rightly so. I think uh, teams, major league teams, have been a little bit um, wary at times of giving and continue to be uh, uh, giving credentials to electronic publications such as ours. Um, so it has, you know, generally it's been, it hasn't been something I've considered, but I guess it's both overwhelming and exciting to think about uh, the sort of possibilities that access provides and what that could mean, especially uh, for this sort of giant pool of data and analysis that we have and sort of putting those things together. Yeah, I mean, my I think my hope is that uh, eventually the idea of, uh, analyst and reporter will kind of converge more than they are right now. Right, right now they're pretty separate things where, you know, a person will go into the locker room, ask some standard questions, get some standard answers, print them in the paper, and then the analyst will try and parse them as best he can, uh, you know, or try and figure something out of his own without any input from the player. Uh, realistically though, an analyst can do better work if he's getting input from the primary sources. And so, you know, over the weekend, I uh, had a conversation with a major league player who pointed out a pretty interesting uh, statistical anomaly to do with um, Milwaukee's Miller Park. Because we're investigating it. We're looking into whether there's an actual uh, thing here that we can prove his claim based on how to get there. And, uh, you know, I think these are the kind of things that having access to these players, having conversations with them, and then evaluating and looking into some of the claims they make or some of the things they say uh, can produce you know, information that hasn't existed previously. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's the exciting thing. I also, of course, have considered perhaps uh, 
um, as the as the editor of Knockoffs, considered perhaps the more irreverent side, uh, which I think is also I, I would actually suggest that there's uh, something nice. There are certainly uh, y- uh, you will find certainly human interest type stories about players, um, but I know that like for example, uh, uh, Dave Brown when he does his uh, Answer Man series, I find that those are always very entertaining, and he ends up uh, even from a from a player like Joe Maurer, who I would submit has a relatively vanilla. Uh, public persona, I think that uh, that uh, Dave Bryan was able to extract some pretty amusing answers from Joe Maurer. Hey, can I ask a question? Yeah. Why do we use the term vanilla to uh, talk about something that is plain? When you open a cap of vanilla extract in baking, and it is one of the most pungent and odor-filled things in the world, wouldn't we want to pick something that like had no scent and no flavor? Because vanilla is like particularly strong. Oh, that's interesting. It might actually it might have more to do with the fact that it's colorless. But you're actually right in the sense that. Uh, and growing up as a child, and even up till this very day, uh, I do think of vanilla as plain, but it actually does have a distinct flavor. I mean, very distinct. Certainly the extract, as you point out. Yeah. You put vanilla extract in something, you know it's in there. Yeah. Wow. Cameron, you've really hit upon the important issues to start things off here. Can you tell my wife that the entire weekend baking? No, I, I can't tell that, but that's that's pretty great. I guess it's great for you. Uh well, she was having a Christmas party for her coworkers, so they they devoured a lot of food that I did not partake in. Oh, okay. I'm sure you spent the weekend at the gym. No, I actually helped make them food, and then I left. Oh, okay. Well, very good man, I guess. Then, yeah. The uh, right. I, I deserve kudos. We should totally continue talking about this. I'm sure our readers are fascinated. Let's talk about Will Myers because it's a big thing that happened. Uh, it happened within the last 24 hours, as of when we're recording. Uh, well, I, I call it I call it Will Myers. I think that maybe shows my bias. Someone could also refer to it as James Shields. Uh, I think that it might also, to some degree, represent your bias too. Is that not true? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think to some degree, but I might have canceling biases here. Cause I love James Shields. I've been a huge advocate of James Shields for years. Uh, I wrote a post over the summer about James Shields turning into an ace when he started adding ground balls to his repertoire. Uh, you know, I've been advocating for for more love for James Shields for, I don't know, four or five years at this point. So to see James Shields disgust the truth in front of the rotation starter does my heart warm. I, I just wish it wasn't in the context of a team massively overpaying to get him. Mm-hmm. Now this is, um, so so we have here the trade that sends James Shields and uh, along with right-hander Wade Davis from the, uh, from the Tampa Bay Rays to Kansas City for Outfield prospect Will Myers, uh, who has recorded, I think, zero plate appearances at the major league level, uh, despite having hit 37 home runs, um, many of them at AAA last year, if not all of them, um, it, along with Jake Odorizzi, a, a sort of noted uh, right-handed pitching prospect, uh, also Mike Montgomery, uh, who was uh, who has been uh, sort of a more highly touted prospect, and then Patrick Leonard, uh, who had uh, as a 19-year-old a very good season in the Appy League. So that's the trade in full, I believe. And then there's maybe some cash or a PT PT BNL uh, along, along with it. Yeah. And, and generally, anytime there's cash or PT BNL, you can imagine that the PT BNL is terrible. Mm-hmm. Listen. This is the sort of inf- – I actually – you mentioned that in your uh, your analysis of the trade, and I said this is the sort of thing that Dave Cameron provides because I uh, I would have not thought even t- uh, to know that. How do you know that, I guess? How do you know that, Dave Cameron? Well, I, I mean, you think about it logically. I mean, I think I've seen a bunch of these trades over time, so it's probably history. But at the same time, if, if a team has a choice between some version of prospect or a bag of cash – 
that means that the uh, prospect of note is not going to be substantial because teams do not send each other mountains of cash in these kinds of deals. I mean, a prospect of some value is going to be worth, you know, five, ten, fifteen million dollars. Uh, the Rays are not sending five, ten, or fifteen million dollars to Kansas City in this trade. If they choose the cash, it's going to be, you know, fifty grand, maybe a hundred, uh, somewhere in that range, which means that the prospect is going to have to be of similar value. And, you know, a fifty or hundred thousand dollar prospect is, you know, a tenth round pick or something. And can you just discuss uh, briefly just the the parameters of how? I mean, this is like, you know, transaction one one, but the parameters of how a player to be named later are, are established between two teams. Yeah, so in general, what will happen is the team will get really close to the deal, and maybe they just can't come down to agreement on who the last player going one direction or the other should be. Uh, but they've got a list of three or four guys that they're kind of banding about of, you know, some note of uh, value all in the similar range, and they just want to get the deal done. So rather than just continuing to haggle over the last guy in the deal, the, the team will just say, look, you can have one of these guys, we'll figure out another date, uh, let's just announce the deal, get it done, move on with our lives, and we'll figure out who the, the meaningless final prospect in the deal is. Or sometimes it will also depend on uh, performance. So you'll see a guy maybe coming off an injury or, you know, currently on the disabled list or a guy who's slumping, and the team will say, look, here's the deal. We'll take uh, this prospect if this guy comes over here and pitches really terribly and it turns out he was more injured than you told us, and we'll give you, you know, marginal prospect X. But if he's awesome and he pitches really well and he's healthy, and you've been honest this entire time, and, you know, he really was ready for a breakout, then we'll give you this better prospect. Why? And uh, kind of base the player to be named later on how the player performs after he, he goes to his new team. That's probably not the case in this in this deal, probably more of the former, but uh, it does happen occasionally where the, the player's performance dictates what kind of player goes the other direction. And if I'm not mistaken, another instance in which that uh, the player to be named later is utilized is if a player was drafted within the past year. Is that a fact? Yeah, I mean, so teams can use it as a way to get around that rule. It's basically a loophole where a player who's drafted can't be traded for one year for the signing date, um, but a player be named later doesn't have to be named for six months. So you can trade a player within six months of signing in as long as you push the player be named later to the very end of its limit. Uh, the A's famously did this with Jeremy Bonderman in the Carlos Pena trade. It happens occasionally, not, not all that often. Uh, teams usually don't want to trade prospects they just drafted six months ago, so... Um, that's the least common usage of a, of a player name. Now, um, your piece with regard to the trade uh, is called Royals Mortgage Future to be Mediocre in 2013. Uh, now, uh, I don't think even a person would have to be a genius uh, to, to recognize that perhaps you don't think, uh, just from that title, particularly highly of the trade for the Royals. Now, here's a question for you. I know that you, um, and I think this has been part of your evolution as an analyst, um, and, you know, I know this from having uh, spoken with you uh, on and off the podcast. Uh, you are certainly an advocate of teams trying to win. Uh, that's, yeah. that's one thing I'd say. You're, you have also said uh, you've written an article not very long ago, why you, uh, especially with regard to the Marlins and their trade, you don't like teams that accept losing going into the next season. You recognize that there's a great deal of uh, variation uh, from a team's projected win total entering a season, and uh, it's you know it's end of season total. The standard deviation there is quite large. Uh, now, uh, all that considered, uh, how does that relate to this move, and why? Uh, in I guess in spite of all of that, you still see that it's not a particularly great one for the Royals. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way that I look at it is that it's not a 
every team should try and win every year or, uh, you know, some kind of binary yes-no decision. Basically, teams should take stock of what they have and what their competition is and what their odds are of making a serious run in the playoffs uh, in any given season. And, you know, there should be a sliding scale. that When those odds go up, they are more willing to sacrifice their future in order to improve their team in the present in order to try and win. Uh, and if their odds get further away, they should be less likely to uh, trade future wins for present wins. And I think, you know, if you look at this Royals team, it's not that they shouldn't try and win in 2013. And I think that's part of the misconception of, of the trade. And, you know, those of us who don't think it's a very good trade for Kansas City, is the, you know, a lot of people argue, well, they had to get better, they had to improve their pitching, they had to do something. And, you know, to that I, I entirely agree. The Royals should not have gone into 2013 with another terrible rotation and just said we're comfortable winning 70 games again. But they didn't have to do this. Right? So this was not uh, the kind of move that was required based on their position in the standings. Last year we saw the Tigers, when Victor Martinez blew out his knee, they looked at their team and said, we've already you know, got Miguel Cabrera, we've got Justin Merlander, we have Doug Fister and, and Max Scherzer, we've got pieces in place uh, who are ready to win, we think we're the favorites in the AL Central, and getting a four or five win DH could be a, a huge difference for us, get us into the playoffs, maybe get us to the World Series, as it turns out it did. So they were willing to pay a price long-term by giving Prince Fielder a nine-year contract uh, in order to improve their team in the present. And I think in that case, you could argue uh, that that was a team that needed to overpay and needed to trade some future value for some present value because of their current situation. When you look at the Royals, that's just not them right now. They have you know, a young first baseman in Eric Hosmer, a young third baseman in Mike Moustakis. They had Will Myers, who would have been a young right fielder. Uh, they had a young left fielder now scored, and they had young pitching coming. They had a young bullpen. Like, this was a team that had significant future potential. Uh, maybe their window was a year from now, two years from now, uh, but they had a window to win on the way. As long as they kept building with young players, uh, building with guys who could, you know, have team control three, four, five years, they really had the chance to have a nucleus in place uh, that could win, you know, 2014, 2015. They didn't have to win in 2013. Uh, in order for this team to make sense. Like a, an older team or a team with a bunch of free agents to be would, would need to win now. They just decided to move their timeline up. They got impatient. They decided they were tired of losing, uh, and they would rather win in 2013 or try and win in 2013 than have sustained success in 2014 and beyond. And I think that that impatience uh, is essentially foolishness. Now, when you say uh, they were tired of losing, uh, could, could it also be the case that Dayton Moore and you know probably a number of people uh, who Dayton Moore uh, has hired or, or part of that front office uh, that they also may be concerned about job security. Yeah, but I think that their job security comes from somebody's impatience, right? So, like, David Glass and the ownership uh, are, you know, the ones who choose whether Dayton Moore gets to continue as GM or not. And if, if that ownership looked at what was in place and said, you know what, we might only win 75 to 80 games again next year, uh, if we make more minor moves, if we keep Myers, you know, maybe we try and upgrade our pitching in the rotation in pre agency with Honorable Sanchez. And, you know, there are guys we can go after, but we're not going to get a James Shield because the price is just too high. Um, you know, if they would have looked at it and said, we're okay only winning 75 to 80 games in 2013 and then really going for it in 2014, uh, after we see, you know, another year of Hosmer, another year of Osaka, if we get a rookie year out of Myers, we kind of figure out what we have, can better evaluate our holes, and then really make our splash. I think. At that point, uh, Moore wouldn't have had this, this job security pressure on him. But somebody in the organization, likely the ownership, uh, has made it clear. Um, I mean, we're speculating here, but it seems like they've made it clear that if Dayton Moore doesn't win next year, he probably won't have a job in 2014. And 
that kind of external pressure can make you do, um, you know, things that are in your short-term future at the expense of the long term. Uh, and I think, you know, in this case, if the Royals were that desperate to win in 2013, uh, they probably should have just changed general managers a few years ago. I mean, they should have noticed, you know, a couple of years ago after four or five consecutive losing seasons, the Dave Moore wasn't really getting them that close to competitiveness. And they should have changed courses then. Changing courses now after building up a farm system, after getting a bunch of young players to the major leagues, uh, you know, it's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul. And in the end, they might not win now or in the future. Now, in this case, can Peter press charges? Um, he, that would be an interesting thing. We should have like a not grass trial where Peter is suing Paul. Because <laughs> uh, that's actually not the first time I've heard you invoke that uh, either. It, it, it is one of my favorites. Yeah, right. Peter, uh, Peter and Paul. And I guess it probably applies to uh, more than one instance of, uh, of I guess, the, uh, it explains the motivation behind at least some uh, baseball transactions, uh, some trades like this where um, you surrender future, uh, you know, possible future success for short-term success. Yeah, I think I actually tend to use this more in trades where a team is, trading something off their major league roster. So in this case, I'm using the, the Rob Peter to pay Paul more to talk about the fact that Will Myers should have been the Royals starting right fielder next year. So in order to upgrade the rotation, they made the, their right field position worse. Uh, and now they're essentially stuck with Jeff Francoeur or some kind of low-cost platoon guy who can share time with Francoeur. The right field situation is going to be bad next year. It didn't have to be bad. If they would have kept Will Myers, it could have been okay and maybe even pretty good. So I think when you look at uh, you know these kind of transactions, this is the deal when I'm just not comfortable calling Will Myers a prospect. The Royals shouldn't have viewed Will Myers as a prospect. They should have viewed him as their starting right fielder. And that's why this is, you know, and, and to use the, the term robbing Peter to pay Paul, is they're taking something that should have been, you know, a regular everyday player off their 2013 team in order to improve another part of their 2013 team. And when you factor in that downgrade, uh, the upgrade of adding James Shields and Wade Davis isn't large enough to justify the future cost. Do you think that, uh, do you think it would be fair to suggest that uh, the improvement you'd have from replacing Jeff Francoeur with Will Myers uh, is not that much less, or maybe even maybe even almost the same as the improvement you get by replacing Luke uh, Luke Hochaver in the in the rotation with with James Shields. No, probably not. I mean, I think if you look at Francoeur, he's basically a replacement level guy. You know, zero to maybe half a win. I don't think we can project Will Myers in 2013 as any better than two wins. I mean, he's still got some contact issues. Uh, you know, the PCL is a pretty good place to hit. Uh, there's there's real reasons, I think, that Will Myers could struggle next year. Um, maybe be a one, two-win player or something along those lines. So I think, you know, Myers isn't going to be – I don't think – for me, the the part of this trade that, isn't, uh, that doesn't make sense isn't that I thought Myers was going to come in and light the wool on fire, and I don't think he's going to go to Tampa Bay and hit 40 home runs. I think that Will Myers could have been an average-ish right fielder. So we give him a two-win upgrade over Frank Coor. Shields is almost certainly more than two wins better than Hoshaver. I mean, I think overall – then you can't, you gotta factor in Wade Davis as well. So, I think overall the Royals did get better in 2013, but they didn't get better enough in order to justify the long-term implications of, of trading six years of Myers and tying up, you know, $25 million, uh, in salary for the next couple of years. Uh, and then if they think of Wade Davis's options even more than that, uh, they just didn't get enough in return in order to justify both the long-term talent and the cost. Uh, of, of this trade. Now, what, uh, one uh, important point I think you made, uh, and, I, and you know it pains me to compliment you, of course, but uh, I think you did a good job at uh, laying this out, which was, um, you, 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 in the second piece you wrote on, on it, um, 
you replied – you responded to, I guess, in particular, something Jeff Passan had mentioned, but I don't think you were trying to say – Oh, you better, you, you better call him Jeff Passan or he's going to get really mad at you. Oh, is that right? Sorry. Jeff Passan, right. Yeah. It's the internet. I don't yeah. know how to pronounce anything. Uh, yeah. So Je- Jeff Passan, right? And I don't think that you were – I don't think it was your ambition to single out Passan. I think that what you were suggesting was uh, – um, a point he was making was representative of a point that a number of people were making, which is that we view James Shields as a sure thing, and we view Will Myers, as you said, in, in how maybe in maybe characterizing the Royals' opinion on Will Myers, we, uh, a number of people will view him as a prospect and therefore not a sure thing. Now you made some uh, what I think are important comments on that. Would you care to characterize that? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, going back to what I, what I mentioned about Myers being a Royal starting right fielder, to me there's a difference between a prospect who's, you know, I, I would tend to think of that in terms of a guy who's, you know, uh, not ready for major leagues, probably at least a year away, uh, needs some seasoning, we're projecting future development before we think he could, you know, play in the majors. If he was put on the major leagues today, he'd be uh, a, a below replacement level player. Uh, and there's some future potential if he grows and if this happens and if this other thing happens, then we can see him becoming more than he is. But at the present, he's not a major league player. I don't think we can say that about Will Myers. And, you know, so for me, once you get to that point uh, where you're a top 20, top 10, especially position player prospect who's had success in AAA, uh, played a full season there, and you're essentially ready to step into a major league roster and, and take down a job, even if you're not going to be a great player right away, but you're ready to be a major league regular, you're you're essentially not a prospect anymore. You're you're a major league player uh, with some variation around your projection for 2013. Uh, you know maybe Myers would have been a replacement level guy, maybe he would have been a three win guy. We don't know. He's somewhere in there most likely. Um, but I think at that point you he is a major league player, and and to treat him as any different than any other major league player is to have a little bit of a false assessment of how well we can project major league talent. I mean James Shields could be a zero to six win pitcher. Uh, you know, I think we understand that he's probably going to be closer to, to three or four than zero, uh, and there's probably a narrower band of expectations around Shields than there is around Myers, but we can't just ignore the fact that James Shields' right arm can blow off and he can never throw an inning for the Royals, or, you know, James Shields could pull a Ricky Romero and be terrible, or he can pull a Tim Lincecum and occasionally be terrible and occasionally be excellent. We, we just don't know, and especially with pitchers, to pretend that there's some kind of, you know, uh, known quantity or known entity where we can just look at James Shields and know exactly what he's going to do in Kansas City going forward, and we have no idea what Will Myers is going to do, and he's just a mystery. Uh, it's just not true. Do you think that this is a, just sort of a result of uh, a kind of heuristic that we have or a sort of binary um, a binary way of approaching it? We say this guy, this is a major leaguer, this isn't a major leaguer, and, and there's some – I mean, probably at some level that helps, but maybe – um, you know, we also have to recognize that there's sort of a spectrum or a continuum of talent. Yeah, exactly. And you know, last week in Nashville, uh, I was talking to Jack Threadstick a little bit in the media um, scrum, where we were talking about you know some of the trade talks he's had with players. He didn't, you know, mention Kansas City necessarily, but I think it's pretty clear the Mariners had some talks with the Royals that didn't go very far because the Mariners have pitching prospects, not major league young pitching, which is what the Royals were going for. Um, and, you know, Jack made a, a comment basically saying, you know, the teams will place a value, uh, a limited value on prospects who are um, below the major league level who they haven't seen, you know, pitch against major leaguers. But as soon as that guy gets some success in the major leagues, the entire evaluation changes and their value skyrockets. And, uh, you know, I think that there's some truth to the fact that this is how major league teams operate. I just don't think it's correct. So, like, we shouldn't see a uh, a pitcher in AAA as – 
you know, some performance risk and some performance reward. Uh, and then as soon as he makes, you know, 5, 10, 15 good starts in the major leagues, all of a sudden that drastically shifts and we know so much more about him that can reevaluate the entire spectrum of, of performance and valuation. We should look at them and say, look, we based on what this guy has done in the minor leagues, we have some expectation of future performance. We have a wider variance around that. And obviously the larger the sample goes, uh, you know, the more confidence we can have in our evaluation. We, sh- we should put more confidence in a major league player than a minor league player, but it shouldn't be you know, some and none. Like, there shouldn't be a, such a clear distinction where we're saying, this guy is just a prospect, that guy's a major leaguer, and there's a huge leap in between. It just it doesn't really work that way. Can you think of any teams uh, that have maybe taken advantage of that, that tendency of uh, some talent evaluators to, to have that sort of binary uh, thought process with regard to prospects? I mean, in this case, uh, you, you could probably pretty easily point to the Tampa Bay Rays just because yeah. they're the ones who made this trade for Will Myers, and they've done some other similar things. Like, I mean, I don't know if the Matt Joyce acquisition counts, but he was sort of a fringe player that they made into an everyday player. Uh, ben Zobrist was a player that they instantly turned into a major leaguer. Uh, it seems as though they might have some talent for that. Yeah, I mean, clearly the Rays are one team that you know believe in the productive, uh, predictive power of minor league performance. Uh, I think you know if we were going to look at a team that maybe has gotten good at this, maybe it's the San Diego Padres, right? Like, over the last few years, I mean, they did this to some degree with Matt Latos, but I think you know, they've kind of turned themselves into a pitching factory, uh, you know, especially with relievers where they, they find guys with pretty good minor league stats who aren't loved by scouts. Uh, you know, Latos doesn't necessarily fit into that, that trend, but they, you know, turn them into pretty good major league pitchers, then flip them for more prospects to turn into good major leaguers, they rinse and repeat. And, uh, you know, I think the pitching in Petco obviously helps, but the, the Padres have uh, figured out a way to um, kind of create major league pitchers out of nothing or out of little and uh, then turn them into, uh, you know, a pipeline of continuing major league arms. And, um, you know, I think that there are teams who recognize that they can do this and they can – take prospects, you know, give them roles for a limited period of time and turn them into more prospects and, you know, add more value along the way. And I think when teams are um, capable of doing this and, and doing it over and over, teams should, other teams should catch on and say, hey, look, if they can turn prospects into major league players, so can we. Now, um, you mentioned earlier that Will Myers uh, maybe should have been um, would have, and certainly probably would have, uh, would have been an improvement over the incumbent right fielder. Um, uh, Jeff Frank or in 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 um, Kansas City, is he going to? Uh, from what you could tell, is he going to fill that role immediately in Tampa Bay? Well, not immediately. The the Rays are notorious for holding guys down for service time reasons, so you can bet your bottom dollar that Will Myers is going to start the 2013 season in AAA, unless he agrees to some kind of nine year contract with 35 team options that will keep him in Tampa Bay for you know longer than uh, you know his kids are alive. Um, I would imagine that the, he'll be on the Evan Longoria schedule where he'll spend, the, you know, a couple weeks in the minors. Uh, they'll start negotiating a long-term extension with him. If he wants to sign it, they might call him up earlier so that the service time thing goes away. Uh, if he doesn't want to sign that kind of contract, then they'll wait until uh, he can't collect a full year of service time. They'll push his clock back, and they'll spend seven years of Will Myers' team control. So, um, you know, I would say that you'll see Will Myers in Tampa Bay probably no later than, you know, June if they decide to – you know, send him down and then he struggles and, you know, has some, uh, you know, issues to work through. They could potentially hold him down long enough to where he won't get Super 2 arbitration status. But, uh, you know, it's pretty likely you'll see Will Myers in Tampa Bay at some point, you know, in the second half of 2013, probably more likely in the first half. And if you sign some kind of long-term contract, 
um, maybe in the first couple of weeks. All right. Uh, now, there, another another uh, large transaction did happen over the weekend. That was the the signing by the Dodgers of Zach Greinke um, to uh, what I know is an average annual value of twenty four five. I think over six years. Does that sound right? Yeah, six years, one hundred and forty seven million. Okay. Uh, now, one of the things you mentioned with regard to like the Tigers, for example, last year, right, is that Prince Fielder, especially owing to the injury. Um, before the season uh, to Victor Martinez, Prince Fielder was essentially uh, he was worth more to the Tigers than he was to most other teams. And so when you you know when you discuss fair market value, et cetera, that's something that has to be tailored tailored to each team. Then those marginal wins that Fielder would have and, and in fact probably did allow uh, for the Tigers was uh, that was those wins were worth more uh, to the Tigers than they were probably to any other team at that time. Uh, now. The, the the Dodgers are sort of uh, – they sort of complicate this idea of fair market value in a different way just because uh, their their money is worth less, right, essentially, because uh, they have so much of it. Um, they can spend X number of dollars on a, on a player like Rinky. Whether or not they think he's actually the best pitcher in the major leagues, uh, that doesn't matter. They're, they're sort of like – you know, just like we have run environments, we also have, I guess, financial environments, and they have a giant financial environment. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's certainly some truth to the idea of the fact that if you have such large amounts of revenue and such large cash reserves that you can afford to pay a higher marginal cost for each win uh, than another team and it won't come back to hurt you because you don't have the same payroll constraint. And so, you know, if the Dodgers are certainly, I mean, they look like right now they're going to run a $250 million payroll next year uh, before the luxury tax penalties kick in, which might even, you know, by the time you actually calculate those things, you know, they could be paying something close to $300 million to build a team next year. Uh, if they have, you know, $20 billion in cash that they don't know what to do with, you know, a $300 million payroll isn't that big a deal. <laughs> uh, given their TV contract and the national TV contract, it seems like the Dodgers are going to be a profitable organization, uh, and they might be able to just establish themselves as the Yankees West. And, um, you know, we've seen the Yankees running $200, $220 million payrolls and not lose any money, and it hasn't hurt their ability to contend long term. So uh, I think we do need to evaluate all of their moves under that understanding. At the same time, this kind of, uh, you know, a person or thing is worth whatever anyone will pay for it mentality is how you have bubbles. And so, you know, five years ago, uh, people were buying run-down shacks for $1.5 million because housing was a great investment and it would just go up and forever and they would be able to turn around and sell it in a couple of years for $3 million and, and double their money. And then everyone realized, hey, uh, that home is not worth $1.5 million and people people took a big loss. And so uh, I think that there's a, an argument to be made that, you know, the Dodgers spending can't go on forever. Uh, you know, whether Yasiel Puig and uh, Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford and Josh Beckett and Zach Greinke, I mean, you know, whether they represent uh, kind of a Dodger-centric bubble or not remains to be seen. But I do think it's at least worth considering the point that we've never really seen a team make this kind of spending overture every winner, right? So, like, I mean, last year, all the talk was about how the Angels and Rangers were, you know, rolling in new television money. They had uh, recalibrated the entire market forces in the AL West. They were set to contend forever. They signed Albert Poole and P.J. Wilson and Hugh Darvish, and they were going to steamroll the A's and Mariners forever uh, because of all this TV money. A year later, the Angels were, you know, things that Granky even free agency because they couldn't keep up in the bidding. Uh, they were releasing May and Heron for nothing, uh, trading Irvin Santana away, uh, signing Joe, Joe Bland to fill his spot in the rotation. 
and cutting payroll. And the Rangers just got outbid by the Dodgers for for Zach Greinke. Uh, and, you know, they might end up turning around and trading for a lower-cost guy like R.A. Dickey instead, dipping into their prospects instead of using their money. So I don't think we can just look at the Dodgers' perspective and assume that they're just going to have, you know, $40, $50 million to spend on players every winter and, and you know, uh, continuing on forever. Uh, you know, just like the Marlins, I mean, they're a special circumstance, but there are teams who spend big, figure out it's not a great idea, and decide to change courts. And I wouldn't be shocked if in a couple of years if the Dodgers haven't won with a whole bunch of high-priced, potentially overpriced players, if the ownership doesn't say, well, this is a bad idea, let's try something else. You know, it, it occurs to me that you, you can pay these guys a lot of money. You can, you know, you can bring in a lot of, um, a lot of players uh, and, you know, and give out uh, rather sizable contracts, uh, but there, you still have a 25-man roster, right? And you still have—I mean—you have to maximize that, and you can do that via money. But I mean, obviously, luck is going to be a part of it, and you can't play—you can't buy every player and play them at once. Right. I mean, you know, there's basically two constraints working against a major league team at any given time: payroll and roster size. Uh, every team has to deal with their own payroll. And having a larger payroll gives you much more flexibility in how much you can pay players. But you still have 25 roster spots, and realistically, you have you know 13 important roster spots with your everyday position players and your five starting pitchers, and you know maybe you throw in a closer and a setup guy and you get yourself to 15. But 10 of the 25 roster spots are you know marginal importance and not going to make a huge difference. So you know you have 15 roster spots where you can spend a lot of money in order to make a a, a certain amount of difference. But you're right. If you start overpaying guys and giving them long-term contracts, then they turn out to not be very good. I and mean, if Carl Crawford's bad and Adrian Gonzalez doesn't fit for power, and that Greinke continues to underperform his peripherals, and you know Josh Beckett is a you know a homer-prone fifth starter, all of a sudden they're running out of spots in which to upgrade. I mean, they've committed to these guys unless they're willing to just you know release these guys in two or three years and start all over and run a $400 million payroll. The fact that they're committing to these guys long-term means that this is the team they're going to have to win with, and you know they can add. Uh, maybe a third baseman or a shortstop, depending on where they want Hanley Ramirez to play, and you know maybe eventually they can upgrade at the you know second base or catcher or something. But they're kind of locking themselves in long term at a lot of positions, and if those guys don't perform, they're going to run out of spots in which to improve. Uh, okay, I'm going to let you go I, um, in a moment here. I, you've done, um, you fulfilled your obligations to Fangraphs Audio for the week. Uh, I do want to hijack the podcast momentarily, however, uh, to talk about an independent league hitter. So get excited uh, for that, both you, Dave Cameron, and also a uh, listener at home or, or in his car. Uh, uh, I did. A, I wrote today on the site about uh, Chris Nowak. I believe you pronounce it Chris Nowak, N-O-W-A-K. Uh, the name is not particularly appropriate because his uh, walk rate is rather high uh, currently in the uh, Venezuelan Winter League, uh, where he's one of the best hitters. And then uh, he was also the best hitter in, the, in what is the best independent league right now. Are you – are you just ignoring me right now, Cameron? Is that what's happening? Well, I mean, I don't read your columns, so I've never heard of this guy before. Okay. Uh, you know, I think in general, it's probably best if we just assume that I have no idea no, oh, that's about fine. All right. you've ever written. Chris so. Milwalk is is a 29-year-old batter. Maybe he's 30. I don't know. He he's uh, finished the top three in home runs the last couple of years in the Atlantic League. Uh, that's uh, He was the best hitter by kind of a lot in the Atlantic League this year. I guess here's my question. Um, to what degree? The best hitter in an independent league, or the best, you know, couple hitters, what do we think that they're relative to? Because I think that while there's, while probably the minor league system is pretty efficient in terms of sussing out talent, um, 
in, you know, and you know the sort of um, talent evaluators that are associated with that with each of the 30 major league clubs, there must be some overlap. Like certainly, like the worst, you know, the worst third baseman in AAA uh, is probably not quite as good as the best one at the best independent league. So I'm curious, what do you think is the overlap in terms of talent? You know, my guess is that the best independent league hitter could be a, a decent A-ball player, maybe a fringe double-A guy, but usually the guys who uh, end up in the independent leagues are guys who washed out at kind of at the double-A level. They usually don't make it to triple-A or have any success at triple-A, uh, unless it's like a major league veteran who's just going there for the money. But uh, I would say, you know, if this Chris Nowak guy came over, uh, he would probably be an A-ball prospect, maybe a double-A prospect, and at the age of 29, we probably wouldn't be calling him a prospect of any, of any note. Well, um, once again, uh, Dave Cameron, you've crushed my dreams. Yes, that is what I live to do. Yeah, well, it's one of the things. Uh, it's one of the things, whether you live to do or not, it's uh, it's something that is did by you. Uh, anyway, right, I'm good at it, which is nice. Anyway, Cameron, it pains me to say it, uh, just like it pains me to compliment you. Um, pains me to say that uh, I enjoyed your company uh, this past week in Nashville. Yes, although it seems like you get to spend uh, a lot of time with the Dark Overlord since you were banned from the writer's room. So we didn't see as much of each other as I would have hoped. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, but we still have fun. We had a couple of good meals uh, at the uh, at the Dark Overlord's expense. Yes, uh, those were the best kind of meals. Fantastic. And actually, uh, I can ask you this right now because my uh, my wife, she never listened to this podcast, uh, especially not this far into it. Um, what uh, I asked you about uh, – because we're going to be in the Boston area, and I said uh, Boston restaurants with tasting menus. You, you suggested that I look at um, uh, that thing, you, and you also said uh, Appleman, CEO and founder of Fangraphs, would he would uh, argue on behalf of the sushi place, Oya or something like this? Oh yeah, yes. Uh, Appleman and I went to Oya a couple of years ago, and uh, you know, if you like interesting sushi and not always just like the fish kind of sushi, like one of their uh, you know, specialty uh, sushi items is a uh, potato chip, uh, and then I also had some uh, lamb tongue. So they have, you know, not, not sushi. Yeah, right. It was a sashimi of lamb tongue. It tasted pretty good. I just wish they wouldn't have told me what it was. Like, that was one of those <laughs> things where if they would have just said, this is lamb, and left it at that, I, that would have been enough information. Once they said, hey, this is raw lamb tongue, I ceased to enjoy the fact that it tasted good. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I feel... Maybe slightly embarrassed to admit that um, I, I well I've had I've certainly had sushi I've you know I've had it in more than one place and I don't think that all of it has been of the lowest quality but I actually just feel neutral about it and I feel like that's not really the appropriate reaction to have to sushi it seems like people either uh, are like, afraid of it or they love it uh, I'm kind of with you I like some sushi I don't love all of it I, I you know I'm a fish guy growing up in, in the Northwest so I do like uh, seafood. But, uh, you know, some sushi is just not, not my style, uh, especially, like, I've had uh, clam sushi, which was gross and very chewy. <laughs> not, not a big fan of clam sushi. I uh, would recommend avoiding it to anyone who's never tried it. Um, but I, I'm with you. I like some good sushi. Uh, you know, North Carolina not known for their good sushi, so I don't have a lot of it out here. Right, right. Um, but, I, you know, I'm not going to, like, fall all over myself to go to every sushi bar and every town I go to. I found a uh, a place uh, in the back bay in Boston called L'Espalier, uh that has okay. a a five uh, or seven course uh, maybe seven course tasting menu. Yep. Um, that seemed reasonable. They also have a vegetarian option, so it would uh, make sense for the lady and I. And I, it's also next to 
uh, a nice hotel uh, that made, that I was thinking we could we could make an evening of it. Well, there you go. If it's convenient to my hotel and have vegetarian options, you might have a winner. Yeah, I think we might have a winner here. So what do I do? How do I make a reservation in a place like this? Can I call them? Uh, yes, you can call them, or you can use Open Table. Uh, almost every re- restaurant in the world uses Open Table now, and then you don't have to interact with a human being. And as we know, stat nerds hate interacting with human beings. Right. Well, as we also know, um, it, of all the of all the people who are employed, certainly at a full time uh, basis at Fangraphs, I'm the least good at that. So yeah. You right. That. It, it's a, a requirement to work for us. Right. Uh, what is a what is a degustation? Degust D E G U S T A degustation? Degustation? Is that a word? I don't think so. It sounds like something Eno Ferris would say. Yeah, I, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Anyway, uh, yeah, that looks good. And then uh, maybe I can ask for wine pairing or something like that? You can, although I know that some of you are skeptical of the science behind wine pairings and think that it's all BS. So if you want to like, have some interesting reading, you could uh, Google for uh, wine pairing myths, and there's all kinds of interesting readings about how a lot of the things that sommeliers tell you are just totally lies. Mostly, uh, so here's the thing I like about tasting menus and what I also like about the wine pairings is I don't want to have to think about the meal once I've started it. Right. Yeah, uh, you just want to gorge yourself. Yeah, I love doing that part. Uh, yeah. I was remembering we had like a – what was like the caramelized – there's something silly. We had like a caramelized soup. Uh, yogurt, yes. Yeah, so they caramelized some yogurt. Yeah, with like with something called black garlic and the black other thing and black uh, – Black truffle, yeah. Oh. There were like four black things with caramelized yogurt. And, uh, you know, I know like a lot of – you guys love that food. That wasn't actually my favorite. I mean, there was artichoke, which is okay. Sunchoke. Sun Sunchoke it was called. Well, there was Sunchoke and artichoke. Oh, okay, there all right. Was a, there was a lot of choking in that soup. Yeah, but I thought it was delicious. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, well, there you go. Hey, Dave, do you want to hear – you have an option. You can either do this or not. Uh, sometimes I'll uh, – guests of the podcast, I'll have them do the introduction with me. Do you have any interest in doing that? Uh, I don't really have interest in doing much of anything with you. <laughs> well, let's start. I'll pause for a second. That's Herb Alper, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. Uh, my guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, uh, two weeks since his most recent appearance – on the show is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave, you're there. You're helping me introduce the podcast, whether you want to or not. Yes. Hi, everyone. <laughs> a man of many words. Uh, yeah. Dave, uh, you always uh, you joined the podcast to analyze all baseball. In particular, this week, you analyze the sort of baseball that concerns uh, Will Myers straight. Well, I again, I called it Will Myers straight. Will Myers uh, to Tampa Bay for, for James Shields. Would you, how would you characterize your opinions on that trade uh, broadly? Do I have to do this again? Didn't we already record that? Yeah, this is this is the introduction. This is the first thing people are hearing. Uh, well, stay tuned for me answering a question that Carson just asked me because now he's asked me twice. And I also ask you about Zane Greinke. Answer, answer that one. Yes, I already did. That's my answer. And finally, uh, I ask you to weigh in on a piece I wrote uh, for 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 uh, for the site on Monday. Uh, what's your response to that? To reiterate, I don't read anything you write. Okay, that is Dave Cameron, and you're about to hear uh, him analyze all baseball and what follows its Fangraph Studio featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Let's see, that wasn't that bad, right? No, not too bad at all. All right. <laughs> well, now we're now we're actually just going to say goodbye. I'm going to hit stop. Uh, hit stop in a second.
But Dave, listen, it really was a real pleasure uh, to talk to you. Uh, thanks for joining Fangraphs Audio. Uh, pleasure is mine. All right. No, yeah, right. All right. <laughs> That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. Bye. Bye.